Oh, it's a great day. Ladies had a great weekend, uh, had their little mini retreat, and um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning, but we're continuing off the the lead from uh, the ladies this this weekend of talking about the I am, and uh, last month we talked about Jesus is and all the I am's that he said that he is. But did you know that if you don't understand who you are in Him, that we're going to have confused lives? Right? Because He says that we're made in the image of Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand who He is, it's tough for us to know how we're supposed to operate. But many of us don't operate in the fullness of all that God has done for us or how He's empowered us. We, we think about it, maybe. We talk about it. We hear somebody else say, oh, well, yeah, they do this. But... Uh, as I was preparing this, I, I just thought uh, there's a movie series out there. Um, like uh, I think it's got three or four movies, and it's about this uh, uh, special ops guy named Jason Bourne that has a has a traumatic experience, and he wakes up and he doesn't know who he is, but he finds that he has all of this ability that happens when he doesn't even think about it, <laughs> but he can't remember his name, he doesn't know his family, he doesn't know anything about his future. And I think, how many times do we act just like that, that we're, we've been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ? He has forgiven us, he has, he has uh, redeemed us, he has restored us, and yet we're still acting in a way that is natural instead of spiritual. And when we do that, it creates confusion and it creates a disconnect for us. And we have to be people that understand who we are in Christ. Because if you don't understand who you are in Christ, then you're going to go back to the way that you used to live because that's your natural foundation. And if you watch that series of movies, you find out that sooner or later he does find out who he was. But he's, he's been so trained and traumatized that he can't even remember that life before of who he was. And I... And God won't erase your memory, but this is what he says. He doesn't hold it against you. In fact, he wants to use what's happened to you before salvation for other people in the world around you after salvation. So maybe you're wondering, well, why did God let this happen? Well, A, we live in a sinful world. B, he allows free will. Sometimes it's our fault those things happen, right? We put those things in motion. We didn't act right. We put ourselves in situations where we should have never been. And then we want to blame God, and it's not God's fault at all. It's our fault. But the reality is, if we want to do this, then as we, as we take the large picture of this, I just want to uh, maybe deal with the hard stuff up front this morning before we, we deal with the, the true topic this morning. And that's this. When we say, I am, whatever we fill in after that, is incredibly important because it speaks to your values, it speaks to your identity, it speaks to your destiny. And so when you hear people that say, I am, I'm the middle child. Well, do they have to act that way? Nope. Because there are no middle children in God's kingdom, right? Right? I am a recovering alcoholic. Well, do you have to act like that, or can you be set free? I am a child of abuse. Well, you don't have to be the victim. 
It doesn't mean that what happened to you didn't happen to you. It doesn't mean that you didn't have the problems. But what it does mean is that now there's a newness that comes in in Jesus Christ. And my big question for the I am is this. Are you ready? That's the question you got to ask yourself. Am I ready? We sang about needing a move. We, We sang a song about who Christ is and what he wants to do. The question is, are you ready for that? Are you ready to be obedient? Are you ready to quit whining? Are you ready to line up with the word? Are you ready to step out in faith? Are you ready to put your pride down and actually come to an altar and get some things right between you and God? Are you ready to move past where you've been? Are you ready to actually step into the place that God wants you to go? Am I ready or do you just want God to do all this? God's ready. Are you? Are you ready? that's the big difference, right? If he's completely ready, do you realize he's waiting on you? (laughs) It's very rare that he's waiting on us. And you, as Dieter mentioned, all of those people, you know what? God had a plan before he ever spoke it to those people. And when he spoke it to those people, guess what? They had to step out. He had a plan to deliver, and he sent Moses, but guess what? Moses actually had to do what God told him to do. He couldn't sit back and say, I ain't talking to Pharaoh. You talk to Pharaoh. I'm not leading these people. You lead these people. So my question for you is this. Are you ready? Are you ready to actually quit making your life about you and make it about others? Are you ready to be obedient to God's word in, you know where you're disobedient, you know where your struggles are. Are you finally ready? Am I ready? Because that's the really big question. Regardless of whatever we preach or teach or any Bible study that you go through, the, the real question is, are you ready for what God wants to do? Because a lot of times what he's got planned, there can be some delays And there can be some requirements that have to be met. And most of the time, it's up to us to step into the plans of God, not just, I'm I'm just going to stand here and wait. Well, you'll be standing there a long time. And it's not that God can't move or that he won't move, but I don't see anywhere biblically where he did anything without people stepping up to do it first. Because he already had the plan, but he wants us. He doesn't need the move we do. He doesn't have to worry about being ready. He's already ready. We're the ones that are ready. And so we're going to talk this morning about a very powerful thing. I believe that it's the the second most important gift after salvation. I mean, salvation is the best gift that we've ever been given by Jesus Christ. Because without it, we're going nowhere fast. Without it, we're stuck in our past. Without it, we can't live the full life of Jesus Christ. You can go to church, and you can do all kinds of things, and you can study. But without, without salvation you're stuck. And the second thing that I'm talking about is forgiveness. And the reason it's so powerful is because all of the things that God does for us is based on relationship. Our relationship with Him and our relationship with other people. He saves us so that it's our job to help save other people. He forgives us so that we get the gift of forgiveness and remember the horrible people we've been. And some of you are thinking, "Uh, well, I haven't been that horrible. You're also a liar, so you've got to ask yourself for forgiveness for that. Okay? The Scriptures are very clear. We are all sinners. Period. We all fall short of the glory of God. 
period. Everybody, you, your mama, Billy Graham, the Pope, everybody has fallen short. And to think that you aren't, or to have this type of thing, First John speaks and says, you're a liar if you think that you haven't sinned that much. And pride's a big sin. <laughs> but forgiveness is on the basis of relationship. And it's also something that can stunt and stop your relationship with God because he says, I will forgive you as you forgive others. Did you know that unforgiveness can halt your prayer life? Did you know that unforgiveness can create a bitterness in your heart so that you're not right with God no matter how much you pray? He says, hey, this is how important it is. If you come to me and worship and you realize you've got problems with a brother or a sister... You don't worry about worshiping me. You go make it right with them. And then you come worship me. The basis of relationship is so powerful, and yet we resist that with every twist and turn because, well, it's not my job to go. They're the one that hurt me. They got to... No, it's not. If you know there's a problem, you step out and start it. Now, you can't make the other person forgive you, and you can't always be forgiven. That's just the way that it works, because we're human beings, but you can do your part, and we have to practice biblical forgiveness, and we're going to read a, a powerful story about forgiveness. It's, it's one that, I mean, it grips me every time I read it. it. It reminds me about how good God is, and how patient He is, and how he doesn't want bad things for us. And, and so I just want to start out with a few things to get our, our mind focused here because I think that sometimes we forget what this really means. So I want to define forgiveness for you here real quick. Okay? Now this is the world view of what forgiveness means. It says a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards a person or a group who has harmed you or wronged you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. Okay? Look at that for just a minute. It's a conscious, deliberate decision to do what? To release what? The feelings that you have, because feelings are powerful. Feelings can bind you, or feelings can free you. The feelings of resentment, what that person did to you, or vengeance... They owe me. Forgiveness in and of itself is saying nobody owes me anything. The debt has been paid. And the only reason the debt has been paid, not because they deserve it, because my Savior has forgiven me all of my mess, so I'm going to forgive in the same manner. Isaiah says this to the nation, come now, let's settle this. Your sins are like scarlet. This is what he's saying. Your sins are so red. <laughs> they stand out like a neon light to me. But I'm going to make them as white as snow. Though you are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. This is what God does through forgiveness. Romans 5, 8, that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? While we were still sinners. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. We just accept it as a gift. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, and that's a big if. And even with the crowd this size this morning, there's some of you that are sitting on your sins 
that you feel like you can't go to God, you feel like you've done too much, you feel like you've done it too long, you feel like it's just been hopeless or helpless or nobody even really matters, I'm telling you it's by faith that you've got to enact 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, He, not you, if you'll confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness or iniquity, depending on your version. He does the work. It's not our work. It's Him doing the work. Our hard work is to actually say, Lord, I messed up. I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness for being proud about my heritage. I need forgiveness on the everyday things of how I've treated people. Even though it didn't have a long-term effect, the way I treated people, I need to ask for forgiveness. In fact, Lord, I need to ask forgiveness for you because I've blamed you for things that you didn't do. Lord, I've got to forgive the people that were acting in error. I've got to forgive the people that taught me wrong. Lord, I've got to forgive the people that didn't seem to invest that much in me. I've got to forgive because forgiveness is a gift that we have to act on. It's not just receiving somebody's forgiveness, but we have to actively forgive. And some of you this morning, you have to forgive yourself. Because you're waiting for somebody else to fix something, somebody to do something, your parents to own up, your boss to own up, your, whoever your accuser, your abuser, you're waiting for, you may be waiting till death comes and I'm telling you, you have to step in and forgive and release the resentment and the vengeance that should only be God's and you are on your way to being a new person. Now, this incredible passage that we're going to read here, found in Luke chapter 15, the whole thing is about the value of relationship. And many of you have heard this before, and, and, and if you haven't, then I want you to dive deep into this with me. And, and this, whole, this whole story is about uh, the relationship first between a father and a son, and a, an older son and a younger son. But I want to remind you before we get started that forgiveness is given regardless of if it's deserved or not. And why that's so important is this. Your lives are bigger than just you. Our lives are bigger than just us. You may fool yourself into thinking that you are alone in this world and your actions don't affect anybody else, but it is a lie. Your thoughts, your emotions, your actions do affect the people around you. Your life is bigger than just you. What we do in this life, the relationships we have in this life, they echo in eternity. That's because Jesus realized that we are placed in relationship. He is in relationship. He understands relationship. He wants us to have right relationship. And forgiveness is a powerful tool that's been given to us to make sure our relationships are right. If we could practice forgiveness, we'd never have estranged family members. If we could practice forgiveness, we would not have divorce. If we could have forgiveness, we would not have strange interactions in church where offense happens because offense is going to happen, but it doesn't have to split anything. It doesn't have to divide friends. It doesn't have to break up relationships. It doesn't have to create cliques. It doesn't have to be this big thing. It's going to happen. We're going to have problems in this world, but we don't have to hold grudges. 
How about you this morning? Are you a grudge holder? Are you a nitpicker? Do you even know what a nitpicker is? We use that term a lot, but if you don't know, a nit is the pupae form of lice. So if you ever watch those nature shows and you see monkeys combing through each other's hair, they're finding nits. And you've got to look really hard because they're this small little white bead, usually at the base of a hair root. Are you the person that you can't see the chimp, all you see is the nit? You're always looking for what's going wrong. You're always focusing on the negative. You're always finding the flaw. That is not a forgiven heart because, listen, and I want the best for you. And it's not about, hey, I love people with that personality because they're the people that make sure that everything goes right, right? I want the the critical eye without the critical spirit, but there's a difference between having a critical eye and being a nitpicker that can only see the mess and the flaws, and only expects the mess and the flaws. And the reason why is this. In the manner in which you judge, you will be judged. Do you want God to start nitpicking you? I don't. I realize how flawed I am. I realize how feeble I am. I realize I can be up and down and everybody everywhere in between. And I don't want a hypercritical judgment on me because I use that on everybody else. I realize not everybody else is like me. Thank God. But do you realize that not everybody else is like you? Nobody else thinks like you, does business like you. Not everybody has emotions like you. Not everybody does their life like you. And when you think that you're the standard because you're the nitpicker, you're placing yourself in a harmful place with God because he said, you want to use that standard? I'm going to use it on you. Is that what you want? I don't want God's hand against me. I want God's hand for me. I want God's hand with me. And we're going to see some of that here. So here we go. Luke chapter 15, beginning verse 11. Jesus had been talking about lost things and how important that they are. And again, that it's relational, that we, we find these things, even inanimate things like a coin. And then it flows right into uh, verse 11, and it says this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told him a story. Now, again, this is a story. These are not actual people, but he's using a story to help people draw in because everybody would understand the story they were speaking of. You're going to understand it this morning too. A man had two sons. And the younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. Now, we'll stop right there. For those of you who don't understand the culture, what he really did was he walked up to his dad and slapped him in the face. Culturally. Because... The allotment that the younger son was supposed to be given was only supposed to be given after the father died. It's his will and testament. So what he's really saying, Papa, I wish you'd die. Give me my money. I would advise you not to try that because you probably won't get this result. See, the oldest son, whoever the blessed son is, the, the first son, the first son of promise, he gets a full half of everything that the father gets. And if you have more than one son, all the other half is divided among all the other children. So if you've got three sons, the first son gets half. What's the other ones get? 
Okay? So it's good to be first, right? (laughs) But it can also be dangerous to be first. So what he's really saying is, I don't want to wait for my money. I want my money now. You may live too long, and this is boring. I want my money now. Okay, got it? This is how, how, uh, again, when we don't understand who we are and how we are in relationship, we think, oh, this is just a money transaction. The son's just asking for money. Oh, no, it goes way deeper than that. His father agreed and divided his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this young son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money. Now, now listen, please. This is, this is not digging too deep. We've got to get this. Whose money was it? So whose money did he really waste? If all of our money comes from God, whose money are we really wasting? Whose time are we really wasting? Whose life are we really wasting? If everything comes from Him. And not a guilt trip this morning, but a realization of how important your life is and that your life is bigger than you. It's not just about you. Church is not just about you. This world is not just about you. Where you work is not just about you. Your family's not just about you. You have a bigger purpose in this life than just to exist and get up and eat and sleep and repeat every day. You've got something bigger and better waiting for you. And maybe that's why many of us struggle because we're not ready for that. We're just trying to stay beneath the radar. He wasted all, really, his father's money in wild living. Now, uh, obviously, they have to say that because he was living in a manner that he had not been raised in. Or he wouldn't have said wild living. But about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. All that money he'd wasted, he now can't feed himself. He persuades a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, his crowd would have been going, oh my gosh, because it, it put things in proper perspective. Uh, pigs were unclean to the Jewish people. They wouldn't keep them, they wouldn't eat them, and they couldn't even be around them because it would make them unclean. And yet he finds himself in such a, a place, a set of circumstances, where now this is what he does. He's actually in contact with them. And the crowd that was listening would have went, man, he's in sad shape. Because any good Jewish boy, A, he shouldn't have wasted his money because we're taught not to waste our money. And then he's doing that wild living. And you know what? Some of them are starting to say, serves him right. That's what happens when you live wild living. You end up with the pigs. And other people are saying, hmm, maybe I need to watch how I live. Some people are probably saying, well, thank God I'm not like those pigs. Who knows what all is going on in that, the minds of that crowd. Listen, the young man became so hungry that even the pods or the slop that he was feeding to the pigs began to look good. You see where he's at, folks? Now, when you live a blessed life like almost all of us do, And you think, well, I'm not blessed. Yes, you are. Being born in America, you're in the 90th percentile of the rest of the world. We think that because of what we eat physically that we're doing okay, and yet think about spiritually. 
if God's the Father watching us eat slop spiritually, what we're feeding in, what we're getting involved with, the slop that is supposed to be for pigs, and now we're starting to say, that looks pretty good. Because I can guarantee you no parent ever raised up their children and said, you know what, I, I hope that they're a meth addict when they grow up. I hope that he abuses his wife. I hope she moves to Vegas and becomes a stripper. I hope they have a ruined marriage. I hope they struggle their whole life and find nothing in it that's good. I hope that for my children. I can guarantee you no parent, no real parent, has ever said that. And yet we know that that happens. Not because a parent wanted it, because many times we have decisions and we follow a template that isn't what God wants for us. And I just wonder, this, this woke me up as I was looking at this, what do I think looks pretty good that God would say, that's slop, what are you doing? What are you doing messing with that? That stuff's unclean, and if you think that looks good, then you and I need to have a long talk. You think you should be involved in that? You think you should be participating in that? You think you should be smoking that, eating that, watching that, listening to that? You think you should be, and it's not just all the externals, it's just a heart condition that somehow we think that this stuff that's the refuse left over, we think we get in such a spiritual place that it's good, and God says, that is slop. That's not what I want for you. That is not the best for you. I've got something so much better than that. But you keep up this wild living, and that's where you're going to end up. And it's not about having all a bunch of money. It's about a pursuit of something that leads him to this place. Look at this. He's starting to think the pig slop looks good, but no one gives him anything. He feels probably alone in the world. He, he realized the pigs are eating better than he is. None of the other helpers are trying to help him. The, the farmer's not trying to help him. Verse 17, he finally comes to his senses. He wakes up one morning and he realizes that what he thought was so unbearable living on his father's farm, maybe it wasn't so bad. And I want to set this up this morning like this. There's some of you that you think, oh, living this do and don't Christian life, that's it's got to be horrible, all the thou shalts and shalt nots. And the, first, I'd advise you to switch off the King James into a more modern version because we don't talk like that anymore. And secondly, you don't realize how good it is until you don't have it. You may think church life or being a Christian or, or living a moral, ethical uh, Christ-based life is a downer, it's only because you don't understand the depth of where you're at and that you're not missing uh, the mess, you're missing the blessing. This is what he says. Comes to a senses at home, even the hired servants have food and food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. Look at this, he's making a sharp contrast. I used to be a son in that household, and I realized that the hired hands eat, ate good. And now here I am with the pigs. I'm dying of hunger. And he makes an incredible decision, one that I hope that 
you make. And if you've already made it, this is the decision you have to make again and again and again. I want you to understand this. Salvation is a, is a one-time event, but us coming back to Father when we get to the end of ourselves is a lifestyle. And when we can't because of our pride or we've been at this too long or it just doesn't feel right, then you're going to find yourself at a spot where you can't help yourself. God can, but you won't come back to Him. Modern day, we call that repentance. You, you stop the path you're going and you turn around and come back to God. I'm going to go home to my Father. And I invite you, if you haven't made that decision this morning, you need to come home to Father. Maybe you didn't have a good worldly father experience, but we have a heavenly father that has done everything to build a place for you and to forgive you. And you're going to see what, uh, what a heavenly father looks like in this, in this thing. First of all, he gave the son what he didn't deserve. He gave him all that money. He let him go. It probably broke his heart to see him. He didn't know where he was going. They didn't have cell phones in those days. He just knows that his son just left. He doesn't know if he's gone for a day, a week, and we don't know, but it seems like it's been a while, and he's been gone. I'm going to go home to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. It's a good place to start (laughs) if you've never made that decision. Lord, I've sinned. (laughs) Just come clean. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just take me on as a hired servant. You realize how destitute he is at this point. He decides to return home to his father. And this is the part that gets me. I want you to know this is what our Heavenly Father is like. He didn't move on with his life. He didn't get busy in the affairs of just living without his son. And when that no good, rotten so-and-so finally gets home, I'm going to give him a thing or two. Read this passage right here. And while the son was still a long way off, he saw him coming. In my story, in my head, that father had planted himself and watched for the son every day, hoping for him to come back, praying that he would come back, not knowing where he had gone or what he had got involved in, but all he wanted was him to come back. And that's our Heavenly Father's. Well, it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or what you got involved with or what you wasted. He just wants you to come back. That's forgiveness. He wants you to come back. How did he act? This father that had been wronged, this father that had been abandoned, this father that I can only imagine if he hadn't moved too far away, maybe the reports of this son. You know, Bob, I think I I saw your kid. Man, there was a kid there that looked like your youngest son. He was out there. Oh, my gosh. It couldn't have been him because you wouldn't believe where he was. Maybe that had filtered back. You see, I grew up in a small town. I know how fast word can travel. Even Longview's a small town. Did you know that? (laughs) Word travels fast, doesn't it? And yet the father was filled with love and compassion. And he ran to his son. (laughs) 
He didn't stand there with his arms crossed. He wasn't tapping his foot, preparing for the scathing message he was going to lay on his son to remind him of all the discipline that was awaiting him. Instead, he saw his son, and his heart broke. And again, culturally, as an older man of prestige, he would never run. That's what young men do. That's what foolish people do in their folly. And yet here's this man that doesn't care how it appears. All he wants is his son. He runs to him. He embraces him. Think about that. Now, remember where he's been. What's he been doing? Working in the pigs, sleeping with the pigs, feeding them slop. What do you think he smelled like? And what does the father do? Runs to him and goes, good God, what have you been into? You need to go wash. <laughs> you got to get cleaned up. You, you smell like pig manure. You, you're stained. You're, you're filthy. Do you notice that the love and compassion looks right past that? And what's he do? He embraces him. kisses him. And his son begins his rehearsed speech hoping. Hoping that his dad will let him back. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son and Remember, he's got more to say, right? Will you just bring me on as a... His father can't wait anymore. What's he say? Look at this. Stops in mid-sentence. He turns around, and who's he talking to? Quick. Bring him the finest robe in the house. Get this, church. Who do you think had the finest robe in the house? father. Not the other servants. Don't run to the servant house and get the finest robe. You run into my house and you pick out the finest robe. The one that's reserved that I don't wear all the time. The one for special events. Get my finest robe. And put it on him. Think think through this with me. Please think through this and you'll begin to understand how forgiveness works and how powerful this is. He's restoring his son, reminding him, I refuse to see you as a servant. The servants are going to get the clothes and they're going to put them on you. I'm not taking it and throwing it at your feet saying, change your clothes. And when you look like you're my son again, come back in. Get a ring for his finger, the family crest ring. That I would imagine, this just happens in Tony's mind, that he probably had with him when he left, but as things got desperate, that came off and ended up in somebody else's hand to pay for somebody, for something, for somewhere along the line. And that ring is gone now. Go get him one of my rings and put sandals on his... He doesn't even have shoes. (laughs) Put sandals on his feet. I'm not going to allow my son to be a servant. 
He's my son no matter where he's been. He's my son. And that would have probably been enough. That, that would have been an incredible example. But the Father understands this. You see, when you fully understand what love and forgiveness is, you're able to celebrate these small things. Now, how long do you think all that took? Just a few minutes. It didn't take long to restore him. It didn't take long to celebrate. It didn't take long to help him know. Think, and, and yet, listen, has the Father said at this point, I forgive you? Have those words come out of his mouth? This is the stunning part of this passage, of this whole story. Never once does the Father say, I forgive you. Instead, he acts. Because I've been on the receiving end of somebody said that they forgive me, but they don't act like they forgive me. They've said the words because they think that there's some weird covenant between them and God. If they don't say, I forgive you, that they won't be forgiven. But I'm telling you, you can say, I forgive you till the cows come home. But if you don't act like that person's forgiven, it's not forgiveness. And there's a big difference between saying it and there's a whole big difference between doing it. Because saying I forgive you is no different than me and my brother when we were fighting and my mom would say, tell him you're sorry. Sorry. Say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. And you're going to be when she leaves. Right? Because I wasn't really sorry. It's not enough to give him the best robe. It's not enough to give him his ring back. It's not enough to put sandals on his feet. Once you go kill the calf that we've been fattening up. We had a different purpose for this calf. We were going to use it. But this seems like the biggest thing we could celebrate. We've got to celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. You see... I believe he's gone a lot longer than we give him credit because I think he'd been gone so long that the father feared he was never coming back. And for those of you, if you've got wayward children, no matter how long they're gone, until they've got breath, God can bring people back. If you've got friends, if you've got relatives, if you've got loved ones, it doesn't matter how long they've been gone away from church. It doesn't matter how far they've strayed from God. It doesn't matter if it seems like they're now spiritually dead. God says, I can fix that. And we should celebrate instead of saying, oh, it's about time. And it breaks my heart when I hear people that I know are are good people, and I, I invite them. I say, you should come and join us. Well, you know, when they say crazy things, you know, I think they're trying to put a shield up of, of how they really feel. They'll say something like this, oh, I couldn't go to the church, the roof would fall in. But what they're really saying is, God wouldn't love me. I can't be forgiven. I wouldn't be accepted. I wouldn't be welcomed. And if we remember how much we've been forgiven, then when we see people come back, we should celebrate (laughs) We don't have to... You ever notice that you didn't ask where you've been? What have you been doing? Where'd all the money go? 
didn't matter. This son of mine was dead and now returns to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Let the party begin. Now it gets weird. Now some of you have never experienced that type of love and compassion, but if you've been saved, you have experienced it. Meanwhile, the older son who didn't ask for the money, who didn't run off, who didn't do all of that, he comes in from the fields from where he's been working, so he's the prosperous. Hey, I'm doing what Dad says. I'm the good son. But when he returns home, he hears music and dancing in the house, and he's thinking, it's not celebration day. What's, what's going on? He asked one of the servants that, what was going on, and his servant says, your brother's back. And your father has killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. And the brother's like, thank God, my brother's back. I've been so worried about him. But it doesn't say that. And so you have to ask yourself before we go any farther, are you going to be in the image of God who is the father that celebrates those returning, those that have had the bad life and decide to come back? Are you going to be an older brother? Because the older brother got angry. And he wouldn't go in. Notice he's removing himself from relationship. But look at what the father did. Does the father have to explain himself to his son? But he cares about the son. He cares about both the sons. And so the father realizes the older son isn't here. And so what does he do? He comes out And does what? Begs him. Son, come in. Don't stand out here angry. Come in and and be restored to your brother. Come in and enjoy this life that we're celebrating. Your your brother was as good as dead, and, and now we celebrate that he's back. But you know what? The brother could only see himself. All these years, I, look at this, I've slaved for you. Now, did they not have hired servants? <laughs> Who do you think really did the hard work? The sons or the servants? Come on. I've slaved for you. Now, if you're a, a parent of teenagers or those tweeners, you've, you've heard this before, right? This is unfair. You don't re- I'm slaving away in here. Because it's out of perspective. And I've never once refused to do a single thing except for coming to the party. He forgot that. It was just a second ago, right? Limited memory. And all this time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Now, here's what's interesting. And in my mind, two stories can happen because I can do that in my mind. Maybe you can't. I believe that what we're about to read is the result, which makes this even more powerful, of the father being so desperate to find out that he sends the older son to find the younger son. 
because the older boy seems to know what the younger son's been doing. So he's either seen it firsthand or he's just ticked off inventing, guessing what the younger son's been doing. In my mind, I think he tracked him down somehow. He found him in Vegas someplace, followed him around to see what was going on, not because he was interested in finding him, but he began to collect ammo. Because you hear it in his tone. Look what he says. You never did any of this for me, yet when this son of yours, not my brother, he's not part of me, it's your son. Not my brother, it's your son. When your son comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you're going to celebrate by killing the fatted calf? Now, either he guessed, knew his younger brother's character, or somehow he found out. And look at the heart of the father. Did he care? Doesn't seem to. I'm sure it hurt his heart, but I, I can tell you this. If I thought my son was dead, but it was just prostitutes, thank God. Right? And kids, you might try this trick on your parents. Come home, things aren't going well at school, you wreck the car, you want to say, Mom, Dad, we, we really need to talk. I, I just found out I have incurable cancer. I don't have long to live. And when you see their faces change, then say, sorry, I'm just joking, I, I wrecked the car. They're going to be so relieved. Now, you're still going to be dead, but... Son, you have always stayed by me. I haven't forgotten that. I haven't overlooked that. And you need to know that everything I have to you or someday I'm going to die and this will be your place. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And the hardest part about this story is we don't know if the, young, the older brother went in or not. We're left in this tension of trying to make a decision, and you're the only one that can answer that question, depending on your stance, depending on who you are, depending on if you're the father, the older brother, or the young son. And many of us have had all three of those spots. I've been in all three of those spots. But I'll tell you what, I, I want to celebrate and forgive like God does, because I realize how much has been forgiven me. And the scripture is very clear that he says that those that have been forgiven little love little. And those that have been forgiven much love much. And I believe you can see that when somebody thinks, oh, I was pretty good and, you know, I just made a few tweaks here and there, and they're pretty demanding and they're pretty strict and they're pretty older brother attitude. 
And then you see the people that remember where they came from. That no matter if you're raised in a Christian home or not, the fact that you get to sit in a church and worship a God and have someone that you can pray to is way beyond what you ever deserved. We all deserve hell. We all deserve punishment. We all deserve wrath. And if we don't remember that, then we begin to act like the older brothers instead of the father. But we were never called to act like older brothers. We were called to act in the image of God. And that's what he's trying to help them understand. And you can translate that. The next deepest part that you want to translate is this. The younger son in this passage is the Gentiles. That's you and me. That the Jews could not love. They are not your chosen people. They may be your son, but they're not our brothers. But God made a way to bring us all together through Jesus Christ. Technically, that father should have taken his son to the village square and turned him over to the elders to be punished culturally. And as I read culture, I believe that's why part of him ran. Because if the town people had gotten a hold of him before dad had gotten a hold of him, they might have imposed their own sense of cultural justice. You've got to remember, these are people that stoned people to death for dishonor. Would it change your mind if the father looked and saw the son and saw people noticing his son and picking up rocks? And that's why he ran. Because I'll tell you what, that's the fullness of the salvation story is that Jesus Christ took the rocks and took the cross to spare us. Not just in salvation to act as a hero, but to teach us about forgiveness that the very ones that he trusted, the very ones that he was dying for, didn't see him as the Savior. In fact, they mocked him, if you read that passage. Oh, you can save others, but you can't save yourself. If he is the Christ, then let him come down. And he was dying for those very people that were saying it. Jesus doesn't wrap it up because he wants us to wrestle with how we're going to forgive people. And I can stand here this morning not having walked where you've walked, but I haven't had an easy life. Many of us have difficult stories. Probably all of us have difficult stories. But I believe in forgiveness. I believe it's the most powerful thing that I could do for somebody. It's not the easiest thing to do, but it is the most powerful. And I want to tell you how powerful that can be, at least for me. There was a time of about two years of my young life that I was abused by an uncle. When I got older and I realized how wrong that was, I felt the guilt and the shame that way, went way beyond, because very few people knew that. But I began to make plans 
of how I was going to seek vengeance. And the ultimate plan for me was that he was going to die by my hand. Years passed, and that plan never strayed out of my mind. And as I grew older, got married, and got saved, and I heard of other things that had happened with my uncle and other children, it only reinforced that until I understood what salvation and forgiveness meant. When I had a mixture of emotion, that I got a call from my mom one day that he had died. And part of me was highly disappointed. And another part of me broke, realizing that here's a man without Christ that was going to pay the full judgment of his sins for eternity. Not a jail sentence not being marked as a sexual predator for eternity away from God forever and ever and ever. And if I could turn back the clock, I would pray that my vengeance would have been turned into forgiveness to talk to him and to plead with him to let it all go and to be made right with God. That's how forgiveness is the most powerful tool. That it breaks your heart for the people that have done to you the unthinkable. But if they get what they deserve, it should break your heart. Then you understand the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And some of you are still stuck in that loop, and I am so saddened for you. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has done something wrong, bad, maybe repeatedly. But if you never let them go, if you can never forget them, you're stuck in that trap as well. You are stuck in that loop of never being able to move forward, of never being able to truly be you, of always putting it through the filter of who you were or what was done to you. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ can make you a new creation. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But because of his love, like the love of that father, he runs to us and embraces us and says, I'll bring you, I'll restore you. Get the robe for them. Get the sandals. Get the ring. I want to remind them that you're still mine. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. And it's only our pride or it's only our excuses. And those are so small and so weak a thing to keep us from the powerful tool of forgiveness to be able to have your heart finally set free where when you see that person, it's not instant emotion back to that 20 years ago, but it's a compassion. Because I think that father didn't see a stinking, dirty, wore-out, gaunt son. I think he saw love. He just saw his boy. He looked past all the exterior, just like he wants to do with you. And you've got to be able to do that too. And it's tough. It is hard because the longer that you are hurt and the, the more guilt and shame that you feel, the harder it is at times to lay it down. But I'm telling you, don't you want your heart free? 
and it's hard to practice. The people have still hurt me. It's not that I'm unpenetrable, but I choose, I choose some days in the flesh to walk up and make it difficult for them and embrace them and say, how are you doing? I haven't seen you. And many times I don't feel it, but I'm still going to act on it. I'm not going to run to the next aisle. I'm not going to turn around and leave because it's uncomfortable. That just reinforces the pain. Or I embrace the pain and say, you know what? Maybe they didn't even know what they did. Maybe they don't realize the impact on me. But even if they do, I must forgive. 